The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host of the podcast, also Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, and it is my pleasure to welcome into the studio today Pastor Andrew Dion of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Andrew, thank you for joining me. It's good to be here, Zach. Today, Pastor Andrew and I will be speaking about the Revoice Conference, a topic that has rocked the Reformed world here in the United States for the past several months. But first, I'd like to introduce Pastor Andrew and explain why I've invited him into the studio to speak on this topic. Not only is he pastor of Trinity PCA in Spartanburg, but he is also a graduate of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He graduated with his MDiv from Covenant before going into the ministry. He has a doctorate in music composition from Indiana University, and he's married with six kids. And significantly, his wife studied opera at Indiana as well. And we might get into why that particular detail is significant. Pastor Andrew is kind enough to spend some time with me to give a pastoral perspective on the Revoice Conference, a, a concerned pastor's perspective on the Revoice Conference. This is a, a conference that was hosted this past weekend in St. Louis, Missouri at Memorial Presbyterian Church, though it was organized and put on by a, an organization that has no formal ties to the Presbyterian Church in America. Pastor Andrew, can you, without further ado, explain to our listeners what the aims and goals and objectives of the Revoice Conference are, who put it on, and in the most positive terms possible, set the stage for our critique that we're going to be um, leveling or exploring later on in the podcast. Yeah, Revoice is the first major work of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and that is a, an organization led by Preston Sprinkle. And many of the, the organizers of Revoice are also uh, a part of that organization. Revoice, their tagline for at least uh, 2018 is supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other LGBT Christians so they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. So what they're attempting to do is is allow for, in the church, homosexual orientation, homosexual desire, homosexual identity, but then draw the line at homosexual sex. And so that's, the, for them, that is the line that's drawn in Scripture, that to hold to the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality is, to, uh, is two things. One, to say that marriage is only between men and women, and that uh, those who have homosexual attractions are not to be intimate. So they, that's, that's what they think is the summary of the historic Christian doctrine of sexuality. I think it's much more expansive than, than that, and, uh, and we'll get into that in a bit. So their first, the first conference was last week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Eve Tushnet was the first general uh, session speaker. She wrote a book called Gay and, and Catholic, and uh, she went uh, through the scriptures and pulled out same-sex 
friendships like David and Jonathan, like Ruth and Naomi, like John and our Savior, and pointed toward how those uh, legitimize same-sex attraction, uh, which I think is a is a uh, is a spin on each of those examples from Scripture. But um, and then the second night was Nate Collins, and he spoke on uh, the prophetic role that LGBT individuals can have in the church. And then the last night was Wesley Hill, <clears throat> excuse me, Wesley Hill, and he uh, he wrote a book called Spiritual Friendship that is a very popular book within the gay celibate Christian movement. It uh, espouses friendships, covenanted, uh, cohabiting friendships between um, same-sex attracted individuals. And so, uh, in a nutshell, I think that's to take fire in the lap and expect not to be burned. Uh, but Wesley Hill is very much um, at the forefront of this movement and has written a, a very popular book. So th- this is, and then there were, at the Revoice Conference, there were 20 other presenters, uh, six or seven of those, and this is interesting to us in the PCA, six or seven of those uh, presenters were either current students or graduates of Covenant Seminary. And the, uh, the um, vice president for academics, uh, Dr. Jay Sklar, also spoke on uh, the text from Leviticus during the conference, not as one of the main uh, speakers, but as a presenter uh, during the day. And so, uh, very, and there was music, and there was, you know, it, it, was, uh, it was a celebration. It was... Uh, it was um, well organized. It was in a beautiful setting. Memorial Church is a old historic church set right next to Forest Park in St. Louis, and it appeared very pretty. So the the distinction here that's important to make is that these these folks are side B gay Christians. They they don't condone homosexual behavior. They're not seeking to sanctify gay marriage. What they're seeking to do is promote the celibacy movement, the spiritual friendship movement in West Hill's words, and then also um, to even promote um, people with same-sex desires to enter into heterosexual marriages and live full Christian lives in that context if they're able to, though that might be a lesser emphasis there. Why, Why does this distinction between gay behaviors and gay attractions, or, you know, homosexual behaviors and homosexual attractions, um, one being sinful, the other not, why, why does this distinction concern, concern us at all? I mean, if these folks aren't engaging in those activities, then what's the problem? Well, if the historic Christian sexual ethic just spoke of a behavior and not desire— then we could make that distinction. But the fact of the matter is, is uh, the Sermon on the Mount speaks to desire. If, if you, you know, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. That is to speak to desire, and desires are to be mortified, right? Desires are sin and uh, arise from the sinful nature and are to be 
put down. Timothy, uh, Paul tells Timothy, flee from youthful lusts, right? And But instead, pursue righteousness and faith and hope. And so right there, flee from youthful epithumia, those desires, those deep-seated desires at points. We're to flee. We're to run. And so that that is an emphasis that is entirely missing from Revoice. There was no exhortation to flee from desires. In fact, the desires are embraced. There's no other way um, to see it when they say that they want same-sex attracted uh, individuals and lesbian, gay, transsexuals, uh, and there's often in their literature a plus, and that could stand in for any kind of desire. That could be pedophilia, that could be bestiality. But there, there's, you know, there's no, um, and and they say that they want those things to flourish. Well, you're not going to be calling uh, for repentance toward those desires, and then in the next breath be calling for flourishing within the church and a um, and a living out of those desires. And so I, I think there's fundamentally a misunderstanding of the depth of sin, uh, the, the nature of sin by many of those that are leading the revoice movement. And, and then, and on top of that, that probably derives from a, 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 lack of understanding of the holiness of God. And so, you know, I, there, there's much more that can be said about this. I, I think one of the key passages is 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 uh, is a list of, uh, is a list of those uh, sins that if one doesn't repent of, you, you have no part in the kingdom of heaven. And I'll just read it so I get the words right. Or do not, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of sexual sin listed in that. It's not just homosexual sin. It's heterosexual sin. It's fornication. It's adultery. But then you get to the word that's translated in my uh, Bible, which is the New American Standard Bible, as effeminate. That word is malakoi. Malakos is a singular. And, and it means soft. It means soft men or soft ones. That's the same word that, that Jesus uses in Luke 7, when he's speaking about John the Baptist and people coming out to see him, what did you come, come out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Well, they're up in the palaces, he says. You know, and, and so there's a, there's a uh, that word is very important. Now, the other one where it's translated homosexuals is arsenikoitai, which is to bed a man. That is addressing sex. But malakoi is a much is a is a much different word. It speaks to being a soft man. And what a soft man is is a man who won't bear responsibility, a man who who is vain, a man who I mean today I think it would be the modern hipster, the man who cares about his looks and 
and cultivates his looks and cares about what like what uh, skin cream he uses, right? Soft men who won't and they and they live in their parents' basement till they're thirty five. That's a soft man, right? And it and it, I think effeminate gets it. Now it has to be pointed out that that the ESV translation botches this word. The ESV translation takes malakoi and arsenikoite and makes it a phrase. It says, those who practice homosexuality. And that's wrong on a, a number of levels. First of all, they got em- it seems these scholars got embarrassed by the word malakoi and effeminacy. And so they subsume it within a phrase. But notice that it says those who practice homosexuality makes it seem as if it's focused solely on behavior, right? Which would please those who are putting on revoice because that's what they want to say. No homosexual behavior. But we can't overlook the importance of Malakoy and its presence in this passage. Getting at the heart of the issue here, the, the problem that I've, I've had some friends identify with this whole issue is the the desire to not let go of a sinful identity, even as you seek to adopt a, a Christian or Christ identity. If you identify with Christ, that means you cannot identify with your sin. And just as we wouldn't say, oh, I am a greedy Christian, and I sanctify my greed by, by pushing it toward things like evangelism, like encouraging people to give to the church, and those kinds of things— we cannot say, I'm a gay Christian, and I sanctify my gayness by exercising hospitality in a particular way, ex- um, participating in evangelism in a particular way to a particular community, being artistic, or whatever else other thing they seek to apply their gay identity in and for the sake of God's glory. You cannot glorify God with sin. Now, God will redeem people— and he will redeem bad circumstances and turn all things to good. But what that redemption looks like, by necessity, is a release from captivity and a release from slavery, a redemption of people from a sinful identity into a Christian identity. Now, Scripture provides the the very practical instructions to us that we need in order to um, to live out the Christian identity and of course Scripture doesn't say go and flourish as a you name the sin kind of Christian. What does Scripture instruct us to do when we're faced with these kinds of challenges? Well, Scripture calls us to put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Spirit, and. That's hard work. No one's, no one's saying that that isn't hard work, that that isn't painful, that our sanctification uh, and the discipline of God is pleasant in the moment. It's very difficult, and he, he disciplines us for our good, but we still find it unpleasant. And so it, it is um, the pursuit of sanctification. It is... Uh, it is a reliance upon the Spirit's work, and it, it is to fight new sins every day. It is to lead a life of repentance. 
right? It's not to boast in our sins. We boast in the cross of Christ. It's not to have have pride in in our uniqueness and our our status as a sexual minority. No, it's to grieve that we are tempted to commit deeds that God thinks are an abomination. Right? It it is and it it is to grieve over that, but not just grieve over that, get to the point where where you're shamed over it, where you hate the sin, where you turn away from the sin. And that's repentance. That is what we are called to. And that even goes down to the thoughts and our desires. Uh, the Holy Spirit's work is not limited to our behaviors. The Holy Spirit's work goes deeply into our hearts and souls and minds. We are born into this life with three problems, as, as one popular evangelist, Reformed evangelist, put it decades ago. And the three problems are very simple. You have a, a bad record, you have a bad heart, and you have a bad life. You inherit a bad record from Adam, period. Even if you were Cain and Abel, you have a bad record from the start, even as the first generation. We all fell in Adam's sin. Our confessions and our, our confessional standards are clear about that at least from a, a PCA perspective here, that we believe that is what the Bible teaches. We add to that bad record because we have a bad heart that issues forth in not just bad deeds, but bad thoughts and bad words. Again, our confessional standards are abundantly clear that these things are actual transgressions against God. A thought, an affection that is misplaced is a sin against a holy creator who's, who's, who sees into our very hearts. And so we add to that bad record with actual transgressions, and that we call that a bad life. But what God gives us, by the work of his Holy Spirit, working in concert with his word in Christ, is a new record, Christ's righteousness. And not just that, but a new heart that now can do good. And though we fall and we stumble, we are forgiven over and over again, and we can say with all confidence, we have we're living the good life because we're living in the Spirit by the Word of God to the glory of God in Christ alone. Um, what I'm seeing out of the Revoice Conference is not a promotion of the good life, but a promotion of a life of basically Phariseeism and legalism, where they set a standard for behavior that, that really is not God's holy standard. And they say, well, as long as I meet this, I'm okay. And that, my friend, is Phariseeism or legalism. This is not the good life. It's not the grace-filled life, the grace-based life. Pharisees diminish God's law so that they can keep it. It's easy to tithe your mint and dill. But it's very much harder to love your neighbor, right, and to care for your aged parents. And and so any time where you see these, these divisions in the the law of God and I would say there's one here between desires and actions right it's pharisaical to say no behavior but you can indulge all the desires you want you can uh, live out your gayness you can live out your transsexualness your bisexualness you can live that out and the church must come to terms with the fact that you're living out and they must create a space for you to exist in 
And, you know, much of what I think Revoice has done in the past three days is to is to forbid repentance, is to say, is to challenge the church to say, uh, allow us in without calling us to repentance, right? Which, which no pastor does, uh, would ever do, right? No pastor who preaches the word of God would ever say, okay, this week I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm just not going to allow anybody to repent. I mean, that's the work of preaching is to draw people to Christ through repentance by the work of the Spirit. And so it's clear to me that these men and women at Revoice are proclaiming to the church where the church can go and where the church can't go, and that their desires are off limits. It's not just that the desires are off limits and they're saying, hey, get off my lawn. I mean, if they were, if they were ending there, that would be one thing. But there was a, a talk, and you mentioned it earlier, I think, that, that was particularly disconcerting to me. And, and I was made aware of it um, by a friend of mine uh, on social media, and social media is helpful for this kind of news. But basically, the, the speaker was advocating for the prophetic function of so-called gay Christians, same-sex attracted Christians, he's calling them gay Christians, as, as modern-day prophets. And he was even warning, you will face persecution from people, I guess, like us, who are going to say, this is not biblical, this is not true, this is not right. What, what was the main point? So who was the speaker in this case? What was the main point he was making? And, and what, why is this dangerous for, for the church? And then after this, we're going to get into, specifically from a PCA perspective, some of our concerns. But this is still operating just generally for the whole church at large. Why is it dangerous, and, and why is it a concern to us that, that the so-called gay community is not just saying, get off my lawn and leave us alone, don't call us to repent, but they're saying, you need to listen to us. We are the prophets who are going to push forward the reformation of the church. Yeah, the, the speaker was Nate Collins, uh, the main man behind Revoice 2018. And the second, each of the nights at Revoice had a theme, and the second night was lament. And so I assume he was, uh, he was drawing from the, from the prophet Jeremiah, and um, speaking about the the role that that those who have these particular desires have in um, restoring friendship and uh, bringing a particular kind of reformation uh, to the church. Now, Wesley Hill makes similar statements. Wesley Hill says in his book, Spiritual Friendship, that, that uh, gay Christians, that's his terminology, um, have a genius for friendship, a genius for friendship that needs to, uh, needs to have a place in the church so that those who are not homosexually tempted uh, might learn friendship from them. Like there's a positive role for living out. There's a positive role for indulging these particular desires, and there's a positive role for being effeminate, being a malakoy, being a soft man. And and we say no. It's it is sin that must be repented of. And again, as I say that, you know, it's not like you flick a switch and your desires change. This is the work of, of much, much agony 
of much confession, of confessing to your pastors and elders your sexual sins, of of fighting um, by by God's word and by the Spirit for your affections to change, for to take thoughts captive that you've indulged in your whole life, right? So this is not this is not easy work. I've had friends who struggle with homosexual temptation and they're tortured. It's very, very painful. Our sexual nature means that our, our identities are somehow connected to it. And, uh, and so it's just so deeply seated in us. God made us male and female. And, um, you know, that, that uh, those desires are, are within us as is the biology. And so, you know, I, I think, um, I think, I, I, keep wanting to say that. I don't want to minimize the difficulty that our repentance takes. We all know the difficulty of repentance. But it's it's one thing to to say repentance is difficult. Another thing to say, well, don't, and instead use your sin as a promoting, as as promotional within the church. You say that you've had friends who struggle with this. I have too. I mean, coming from Philadelphia and being involved in the arts, I was in choir for you know, over 10 years of my life, performance choir. I was in theater groups. Um, I was playing music, guitar and bass and saxophone and cello and all kinds of things and singing professionally. Um, I've been surrounded by same-sex attracted individuals or homosexuals my whole life. And I mean, I have family members that run hair salons, and you know, I I've known people who have worked and have been great employees and and wonderful people to have around who who have issues with 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 these desires, and um, you're right, when when the light of Christ shines on them, it's burning away some things, and it, and that can be and that hurts, and it's very difficult. In your background, coming out of Indiana University, uh, which is famous for having the Kinsey Center on these kinds of things, but also being in the music program, uh, both you and your wife, and surrounded uh, by, by folks who are, who are in the thick of it, so to speak, in, in, this, in this particular area, um, that, that gives you a great deal of compassion for them. And so what is the danger that you see in Revoice and other attempts like Revoice to condone that identity to encourage it, to say you can flourish in the historic Christian tradition rather than the biblical model of saying repent, flee from that. That's going to destroy you. As the conference was going on, I was thinking about the fact that they've called together 500 individuals who are attracted to one another and wondering if that was not the wisest uh, path to take when it comes to uh, doing their promotion of same-sex desires within the church. It just seemed to uh, lack wisdom and compassion, you know. But beyond that, it's, um, I, I think, uh, it's what I said before. The, you have many people there who may still have shame over their, disordered desires. They may still be struggling with 
Uh, how is this compatible with what I read in Scripture of what I'm supposed to be in Jesus Christ, of, of the new man and the new desires and the new heart? How, how is this compatible? And I think of that person at Revoice and what they heard and what they'd be hearing was, well, you gotta, it, it's kind of like that stupid saying, you got to be true to yourself, right? I mean, you, you were, this, this may be a product of the fall, but again, it, it is, it is a part of who you are. It's something that needs to be expressed. You must live out. You must um, pursue uh, relationships without touch. And I just think it's going to cause many to stumble. I think it's going to prolong the repentance of a me- of many people um, that are still uh, wavering. That that. Are, don't want to be encouraged in their gayness, but want to repent fully and know freedom from it. It's a good word, Pastor Dion. I promised our listeners we'd move into specifically uh, concerns for the PCA, uh, the largest denomination in Napark. Uh, almost all of our graduates here go into Napark churches. I attended um, one day of a sister denomination's annual national gathering to be as nonspecific as possible here. And uh, from the floor of their assembly or their, their gathering, somebody expressed concern about what's going on in the PCA, specifically citing Revoice as an example of, of what's happening. So as a PCA pastor, as a graduate of our denominational seminary, uh, why is uh, the involvement of Memorial PCA and and the involvement of people from Covenant Seminary a concern to you? Well, the defense the defense that Greg Johnson, who's the pastor at Memorial, gave at the beginning of things when uh, it was just coming out that Revoice was going to be hosted there is that they were just hosting it. That it's an outside organization that put this on, and St. Louis is a good location. They have a beautiful building, and they were hosting. But Greg Johnson is also a presenter at the the conference, and he spoke on making churches more welcoming to um, those who have same-sex desires. And also... There are six graduates and student, current students of Covenant Seminary that were presenters uh, during the, the times there. And then the uh, vice president of academics, Dr. Jay Sklar, was, he's a, he is an uh, expert on Leviticus, was going to be speaking on uh, the passages in Leviticus that uh, condemn homosexual um, homosexuality. So... You know, in in conversations with him and with others at Covenant, it's troubling that the there would be official support from the denominational seminary uh, by sending one of the administrators and one of the professors to speak there. But beyond that, it's his topic that troubles me. Now, everybody brings up his topic as, isn't it great that Dr. Sklar is going to be there to hold to the historic Christian sex ethic from Leviticus? And I say, well, that just allows cover for everything else that's going on at the conference. In other words, if you have a good guy there who's going to hold the the traditional line, you can say, 
look, we've got a good guy here. He's holding the traditional line. And meanwhile, the main speakers are getting up and, and, and uh, going in a thousand different directions. And uh, Roman Catholics are speaking and, and Methodists are speaking. And it's just, it just is a hodgepodge of various different places and misleading people. And so his presence, the Jay Sklar's presence, I think is more damaging than helpful to be there. And so, but it, but it does tie an official connection. Not, they're not sponsors. We know Covenant's not a sponsor, but it does have, make an official connection and, and some responsibility to fall upon them. And that's troubling. That's troubling that the denominational seminary Seminaries are supposed to train people to have discernment. Train people to have discernment about God's word and about God's people. And six graduates and current students see no compunction, no incompatibility with going and speaking at Revoice and supporting this this conference, which is trying to normalize homosexuality within the conservative church. Andrew, speaking from a a seminary administrator's perspective, I know that if there was something going on here at Greenville Seminary um, that was of concern broadly across the PCA, we would want people to, people who are concerned and legitimately concerned to, to come to us and speak to us about it. You know, talk to Dr. Piper as the president, talk to our academic um, dean, Dr. Shaw, but did you actually approach President Mark Dalby or, or Dr. Sklar about your concerns? Uh, as, a, as a graduate, I imagine you have some access to, to these men, and, the, and certainly as an ordained uh, PCA teaching elder, you'd be able to, to do so. Ha- have you done that? I was a member of the Committee of Commissioners for Covenant Seminary at this past General Assembly. Both men were there. Both men engaged with me uh, in back-and-forth conversation. And the uh, and the topic for forty five minutes to an hour was revoice, and what was going on there. So there there has been communication. Covenant Seminary has put out I think one press release early on, uh, basically saying saying that they support marriage between a man and a woman, but not saying anything to denounce revoice, not saying anything to distance themselves from it. So. There's been and there has been silence since then. I guess the one thing that I remember that Mark Dalby, the president of Covenant, said during the committee of commissioners is this. The conference hasn't happened yet, so we need to wait and find out what's going to be taught before we uh, analyze it and before we denounce it. Though all the the talks were summarized and published on the website, and we had a pretty good idea what was going to happen, and those ideas were borne out. Though Wesley Hill is published everywhere, Eve Tushnet writes for First Things and has published books, and Nate Collins is giving podcasts and interviews, and um, Greg Coles is out there, and Stephen Moss is writing on um, on his blog, and and was hosted at Scott Saul's church in Nashville. And so there's so much information. We knew what they were going to say before they said it. And then their website, of course, has long descriptions of every one of the presentations. So there was enough to go there. And there was, if you visit the website, you'll be 
further troubled. There are topics that were spoken about, such as what queer, um, what queer culture is going to make its way into heaven. And so, you know, is that just to be provocative or is that serious? And unfortunately, I think they're serious. Our standards, our confessional standards, speak to an issue, a theological issue on the doctrine of sin and, and anthropology that, that came up on the floor of our General Assembly, the PCA's General Assembly. Mark Dalby actually addressed Covenant Seminary's relationship to Revoice, and he was clear to say that there is no formal relationship, that there are participants, and they're going on their own accord as individuals. Um, and much of what he said I, I commend, and, and I, uh, you know, I'm right there with him. But there was a, a distinction he made uh, between uh, affections that, that, are, that need to be mortified and sins, and that you can have affections that are not sinful but yet need to be mortified. This was new to me. It's a bit of a theological innovation. Um, can you, as a pastor and as a theologian, can you explain to us from our standards uh, how this does or does not compute? Well, I can't explain Dr. Dalby's statement. It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, anything that needs to be put to death is by its nature sinful. Mortification means sinful. And so there, if there are affections uh, that need to be mortified, then they're by nature sinful. So I think his statement was was quickly written and needs he needs more reflection on the topic and uh and that can come now since revoice has happened and uh, those clarifications could could come and I and I hope to see them but in, in as far as the the Westminster standards what's most helpful to me are the the three questions on the seventh commandment and uh thou shalt not commit adultery it, comprehensive answers about what the duties required in the seventh commandment are and you read these and you think this is much of what has been espoused at revoice the indulgence of desires the the um, enjoying of looking at same-sex individuals because it's an aesthetic sort of pleasure things like that but listen to the answer 138, the duties required in the Seventh Commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. Okay, so chastity, purity, not just in body, but into the thoughts, into the desires, into the affections, all the way to the words, and then finally behavior. And the preservation of it in ourselves and others. So we're to be concerned about the preservation of chastity in others. And I think Revoice has failed to preserve chastity in the church largely, but certainly the participants there who may have been at battle with their desires. Watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses. Every one of the senses. Uh, the, um, the, the, when your eyes set upon somebody that you think you're attractive, um, what do you do at that point? Do you... Do you take the thought captive? Do you turn away? Or do you just think, what a beautiful, aesthetic, pleasurable thing to look at? Well, 
this this uh, flies in the face of that and disciplines it. Temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency. Now, there's a topic. You mentioned it briefly earlier. But those at Revoice would claim that a call for them to seek purity in marriage would be cruel, right? It would go against desires. It would go against long-seated desires. Perhaps they had never known affections for um, the opposite sex. And to call them to purity uh, by, by marriage uh, would be cruel. And I say we cannot take that off the table. And the reason I say that, if you study homosexuality, there's a great book by Eva Cantarella called Bisexuality in the Ancient World. And it chronicles the, the pedophilia and the homosexuality of the Greeks. And for the Greeks, pedophilia was uh, pedagogical. It was sort of like mentorship really strange mentorship that we would not practice. It, for the Romans, their, the pedophilia that they engaged in was about dominance, which is what Romans would be about, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't sodomize free men. They would sodomize slaves, right? Because it shows their, their power over them. But so many young men especially in the Greek system, grew up in, home, in, in these homosexual um, relationships. But then when, get, when they got older, they married and had kids. And, and I, I think if you ask many homosexual men if they could uh, have sexual relations with a woman, they would say yes. And so the, this... this um, this command in Scripture, which has no exceptions, if you burn, you should marry, needs to be recaptured in ministering even to homosexuals. But Andrew, we know the objection to this. It's the objection that this man will never, ever be able to live a fulfilled life in a heterosexual relationship. And so all you're doing by forcing him into the confines of a heterosexual marriage is dooming this woman to misery, and to him, to frustration. I mean, how can we say, don't be gay, go get married? Obviously, the man would have gone through much counseling and would be, would be mortifying the sin and would be communicating with whoever he would marry that that's there. I mean, everybody who gets married, part of my premarital counseling for married couples is if you've been sexually impure before marriage, there comes a time when you have to confess it to one another. One, so you know each other. Two, so you can protect each other, right? So that's no different than this situation. We're, we, we all sin sexually, right? And so it'd be no different in this situation, and yet there would have to be a, an understanding by the woman that that she's going to have to be aware of her husband's affections. She's going to have to uh, pursue him, and uh, he's going to have to be continuing the work of mortifying his desires. I greatly appreciate how you're treating the subject at this point, because what we're saying is that according to our standards, the Bible, above all, is our 
canon, scripture, and then the, this, the, the secondary standards of the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechisms, all sin is to be dealt with in the same way, and that is to be mortified, to be killed, to be put to death. Our sin itself is to be put under so that we might live unto righteousness. And the means that God gives us to do this, whether the sin is same-sex activity or attraction, whether it's vulgar speech, whether it's heterosexual sin, whether it's thievery or covetousness or, or anything, an outward action in our speech or in our thoughts, the means of mortification are the same. But that's not to say that all sin is exactly the same. It's just to say that they're put to death in the same way, through repentance, the exercise of faith, and so on. In fact, the larger catechism will tell us that all transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous, but some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. But all are, in fact, heinous. All are, in fact, sinful. Sins receive their aggravations, um, from a variety of ways, and Larger Catechism 151 outlines that. It gives us uh, several uh, criteria for weighing the, the, the gravity of sin. In fact, it gives us four, uh, four different considerations to, uh, to take into account. Uh, one of them is the nature and quality of the offense. If it be against the express letter of the law, break many commandments, contain in it many sins. If not only conceived in the heart, but breaks forth in words and actions, scandalize others and admit of no reparation. If against means, mercies, judgments, light of nature, conviction of conscience, public or private admonition, censures of the church, civil punishments and our prayers, purposes, promises, vows, covenants, and engagements, to God or men, if done deliberately, willfully, presumptuously, impudently, boastingly, maliciously, frequently, obstinately, with delight, continuance, or relapsing after repentance. I think it's a great sin to suppress the shame that our sinful desires cause our conscience to present. If we're suppressing that shame, if we're suppressing our conscience, that in itself is a great sin, even if the action doesn't take place. I think that's something important to keep in mind, especially for churches that take the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms as its doctrinal standards. The fact that there's really no neutrality in the Christian life. Our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are either righteous and holy and pleasing to God or abominable. Not And sinful can often be a euphemism for abominable, but they mean the same thing. And so we tend to like to think, well, there's some neutral things, right? Swinging a hammer, the act of swinging it, that's neutral, right? If I hit a nail to build something, then it's righteous. If I'm hitting somebody in the head with it, then obviously it's abominable and it's sinful. But the actual act of swinging a hammer or you know swinging a baseball bat or something like that is neutral. Well, in fact... God's word is abundantly clear. There is no neutrality in the Christian life. You cannot divorce that swing of the hammer or swing of the bat from the ends to which it's being swung. And um, and the same is true for all of our affections, our actions, our desires. So if you're going to get up in front of a general assembly, and I say this with all due respect to a man who's beloved by many, who has served his church and in a self-sacrificing way, um, if you're going to get up in front of a general assembly and say that you, you have to mortify this affection, but it's not sinful, well, that's very problematic, and it's not helpful. 
So I hope we get some clarity on that. I do appreciate Covenant Seminary's stand against the behaviors, against gay marriage, um, stand, therefore, for the truth in those particular issues. The battle that's being fought is not about behaviors. The battle being fought is everything that Revoice espoused about homosexual desires and identity and orientation. And whether or not that is is changeable, whether or not that can be um, sinlessly indulged in, and so you can't you you got to fight the right battle in the church at the right time. There's some other practical issues here of concern, I think, for PCA sessions, ruling and teaching elders. Uh, when a church in the PCA, even if they're saying, oh, we're only hosting it as a facility provider uh, for something that is so clearly against the doctrinal standards of our denomination, um, that's opening up the rest of the PCA to lawsuits of discrimination for when we say, no, we're not going to host you because of our confessional standards. And someone say, well, that church hosted something against their confessional standards, and we can show you as a lawyer who's not in your church how it's against your confessional standards. So you should host this event for my client as well, as long as your schedule allows and the rates are, are reasonable and non-discriminatory, non-predatory rates and whatever like that. So there's that concern. Um, I didn't see anybody voice that, but that was something that came to mind to me. And then another concern is Gray Johnson invited everybody to come for a communion service on Sunday. And we know for a fact that there is at least one Roman Catholic there. And even if we had a Roman Catholic uh, speaker in, in, in an Orthodox church who's speaking on the Trinity and someone who's a recognized authority on the Trinity or homeschooling or some bastion of conservative Christian um, concern— and we had a communion service in the church come upcoming, and perhaps that man or woman was going to be there. You don't open the table to them, even if you're agreed on other important issues. And so the fact that the table was explicitly opened as an open table, maybe fenced with silly string, uh, that's a great concern too. Yeah, at the, at the opening session, the very first thing, they had Greg Johnson come forward and he invited everybody to the worship service on Sunday where Wesley Hill was going to be the guest preacher. And uh, I, I, I find that probably more troubling than what he said about the table. Um, but he did say, uh, we celebrate the Lord's table. You're all welcome to come. Now, we, and he said, we practice open communion. Now, it's, um, it is to give the wrong impression off the bat that everybody there is welcome. If later on Sunday he fenced the table, well, good. I'm good. If he fenced the table, if he made it clear that it was those who are, you know, mem baptized members of a evangelical Bible-believing church, well, then he uh, did his due diligence. But um, I fear that there was a lack of that discipline there. And so I, I think it just goes, I think it, it goes to show you that there's a lot of a thoughtless theology going on with Revoice. There's a lot that is in process, but they're saying it with such conviction that it seems as if they've, they've come to uh, tight conclusions. That's why this is so dangerous, because those 
who are there, who are still at work, uh, struggling against their sins, will be uh, made to believe that this is the way. And um, I, I think the, the likely the speakers were contradicting one another, and it, it just it, it, uh, it was sloppy. One of the concerns um, was with some of the flippancy at this conference as well. Uh, there, there were there were jokes made that were at least verging on course, if not outright uh, course. Here, here's here's one piece of advice that was given at the Revoice conference. Um, and forgive me, I don't I don't generally like taking things out of context, but I think this quote speaks for itself, even just in a few words. I don't know if it was in a breakout session or a plenary session, um, but it was advice given to leave the church that counsels uh, reparative therapy which is basically the, you know, a kind of therapeutic approach to converting you out of some kind of sexual attraction. Leave that church, go get a full body massage, and have him rub you deeply. How is this helpful yeah, or edifying? It's, it's a gay joke. Yeah, exactly. It's a gay joke. Yeah, and, and just the, the topic of that, reparative therapy, you know, we might quibble and more than quibble about the techniques of reparative therapy. But you've got to remember that our culture is banning reparative therapy. So right now for Christians then to say reparative therapy is bad is to yoke yourself to a godless state that wants to open every sort of sexual uh, deviance. And so we have to be very careful about that. What what I think the motion against reparative therapy is, is, is our, our state and our city governments and our school boards trying to ban repentance, right? And so we have to be very careful about the way that we approach reparative therapy. Um, there, there was a light treatment of sin. Uh, Eve Tushnet um, said that, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, uh, keep a standard of fidelity and then she said something along the lines of yeah it's really hard to keep up with king david's standard of fidelity well that's to make light of sin that's to belittle uh belittle what king david paid for for the rest of his earthly life Right, that that is to belittle his grief and his shame for what he did. It is to belittle the seriousness of the prophet Nathan coming to him and telling him, "You're the man." It's just to, it's just to, um, it's just to treat holy things uh, lightly, and that's that's always inappropriate. It's to belittle the destructive effects of David's sin on his family for generations, and on the whole kingdom. For generations, um, I mean, you read uh, it's a belittle Psalm fifty-one, which is such a great. It, it puts the words in our mouths when we can't confess our sins ourselves because the weight crushes us so greatly. There was another conference that I attended this past weekend elsewhere, and the theme was on the insuppressible nature of the truth in Scripture. It, w- it was actually a conference more on uh, issues of science and epistemology. Not really dealing with these these particular ethical concerns we've been discussing today, but I have this this idea: the insuppressible nature of truth. That no matter how much 
The unrighteous seek to suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. It's insuppressible. It bubbles up. The image was given of a, of a beach ball, and a little kid trying to push a beach ball underwater in a pool, and then it slips and it flies up out into the air because it's insuppressible. And nobody's, nobody's asking any same-sex attracted individual who claims Christ to suppress his or her identity because we understand it's, it's insuppressible. But we are saying that the Bible gives a much better option, and that is to crucify it, mm. to put it to death, to put that old man to death and to live the good life, mm-hmm. the life of godliness, the life of Christ. And uh, the truth will not be suppressed. You might harden your conscience and sear it over, with any kind of platitude or frivolity or triviality or joke or justification or, um, or picture of beautiful spiritual friendship or whatever. But the truth will not be suppressed. And if your conscience is railing against the kind of message that Revoice was putting out, praise God, because it is the spirit that quickens the conscience and leads to repentance. Yeah, I, you know, I think... Biblical sexuality in general is is a if we if we need a new another chapter in the Westminster Confession, it's on sexuality and another on technology. Um, but in it's so profound that in the beginning it just says God made them male and female. Right, right there we're given a command to live our biology. God fashions us men or fashions us women from the womb, and it is disobedience to not confess that which is so fundamental to our makeup, which God, in his knitting us in the womb, gave to us. And so that's where, that's where I see a lot of suppression trying to go on. A transgender uh, man will try to cover up his biology, but he can't hide his broad shoulders, right? He can't hide the structure of his chin unless he goes through all kinds of expensive surgeries and whatnot. But, but he ends up in a twisted way still confessing what God gave him in his biology. And, um, and so I think, I think there needs to be talk to those struggling with same-sex attraction, it, it, we need to say to him, no, you, God made you a man, live as a man. Or God made you a woman, live as a woman. Because Scripture speaks to masculinity and femininity. Scripture speaks to it everywhere um, in all the examples that we have, but certainly directly on in passages like 1 Corinthians 11 and Proverbs 31 and um, Genesis 2 and Titus 2. I mean, we have direction for what it means to be uh, godly according to our sexuality. And that needs to come into play. It is not cruel to tell a homosexual man that he must be a man, stop being effeminate, and that if he burns, he should marry. <laughs> now, there's a lot more that needs to be said about that, but we can't forget the fact that we confess our sexuality everywhere, 
all the time by the fact that God made us male and female. Pastor, what can we do in the PCA? What steps can be taken by ordained men, um, unordained men and women who are concerned about this, even seminary students, perhaps at Covenant Seminary in the Divinity Program? And an aside here, my understanding is that most of the involvement by Covenant Seminary-affiliated individuals in the conference was out of their counseling program, and the students in the Divinity Program are actually, on the whole, very uncomfortable with this, and are embarrassed that there's even an association here between the seminary and Revoice that's being made rightfully or not at the national oh, stage. So, so what what can we say to encourage these brothers who are in the Divinity Program at Coven, and then other members and, and ordained people in the PCA about what can be done to respond lovingly but firmly and truly to our concerns? Well, as far as MDiv students at at Covenant, they should speak with their professors, and they should speak with staff members and administration and express these concerns. When I was there, I was dialoguing with professors all the time, um, particularly on the doctrine of sexuality, which I thought was being uh, mishandled. And so I would, you know, we would, a New Testament class, we'd skip over sections that I really wanted help with in 1 Corinthians 11, and I'd go talk to the professor. Why do we skip over this? These, you know, we we need to figure out head coverings and and what it what it means that the the woman was made for man and not man for the woman, and and so have these have these dialogues, ha, go to them, write to them, email, say here's what I think, and here's what Calvin said, and here's here's the historical view, and and uh, and push uh, respectfully push. And, um, and that's, that's where learning happens. Learning doesn't happen in a classroom. Learning happens when you are um, actually trying to deal with an issue that has implications for the church as it, as it is now. And beyond that, I think that the courts of the church have to be involved. And what that means at this point, I don't know. Uh, that means reviewing what was said at Revoice, reviewing uh, how the session of Memorial Presbyterian was involved, uh, reviewing how uh, how Missouri Presbytery was either active or inactive and what should be disciplined in that and what sort of uh, overtures should be made to them. That's the beauty of, of the Presbyterian system is we have courts that allow us to, uh, to investigate matters. And discipline is always aimed toward restoration, to, to clarification in many cases. There's a lot that's just simply not known right now, and, and it's asking questions. Now, what's dangerous here is when uh, an, an, a, an, a party who's either alleged to have done something or is just receiving questions about what was done, uh, responds in such a way as to say, oh, you're being unloving, you're being rude, you're being mean, you're attacking me. No, brother, we're asking questions, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, There's no clarity. You know, we're we're taking the first step here to to just say, what was the involvement? What was the endorsement, if any? And, And why? What was the justification? And maybe we'll say, okay, reasonable. All right. Do do you think Jesus is an example to us, Zach? Yes. How about the Apostle Paul? Yes. 
I mean, you go through the way that they spoke to their opponents, and both of them, even our Savior, would have been brought up for charges in many presbyteries. For being unloving and unkind. And That's right. Lacking But the fact of the matter is, is Jesus can't be unloving and unkind. We know that fundamentally. We know that theologically. And so when he, when he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and twice the sons of hell, when Paul in his letters calls out Hymenaeus and Philetus, and um, this is... This is true. First of all, they were not saying things that were untrue. You always have to speak truth. But that doesn't mean you always have to speak soft, right? There are hard words that are true. There are hard, uh, I mean, Paul engages in ad hominem in his letters. And so there are times, but, but all of it has to be true. It has to be done with kindness. It has to be done for the glory of God it has to be done so that, you know, if God, by God's kindness, they turn to repentance. That, that all has to happen. But um, there are times for hard, clear words. There are times for warnings. There are times for blowing trumpets. And in the PCA, if that moment isn't revoice, then I don't know if there are any moments where trumpets will be blown and uh, warnings will be yelled. I think there are efforts to thoughtfully address the confusion on how to minister to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction and trapped by it and all other kinds of sexual sin as well and and sins of identity Um, because there's other sins of identity that don't have to do with with sexuality um, though that's it's usually tied to that so um, if 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 nothing else can be said good for revoice at least it's the forcing the conversation in some quarters to help clarify the church's message as a whole. What is unfortunate is that something that is so clearly antithetical to the gospel was hosted by a PCA church, and um, makes makes me sad. That's right. Uh, so that's right. Uh, not that anyone cares if I'm sad or not. What recommend? What resources would you recommend to folks um, for? thinking through this issue further, um, in addition to reading the things by the people involved with Revoice, so you can actually see what they're saying in all of That's its, right. its quote-unquote glory, what else, would you, uh, what else would you recommend? Well, the first thing is the Westminster Standards. Read the larger catechism, 138 through 139, on the Seventh Commandment. I read a portion of it earlier, but it is, uh, it's incredible how... Um, how insightful men who weren't in a culture like ours, though there were sexual sins, there wasn't the openness about homosexuality, but they dealt with it. And so read that first. Second of all, the best book on this out there right now, because it's contemporary and it deals with the specific issues in the church, is Tim Bailey's book, The Grace of Shame, Seven Ways the Church Has Failed to Love Homosexuals. And he, he just goes through many of the errors that are being promoted in the church, the gay Christian error, the godliness is not heterosexuality error, the sexual orientation error, uh, the, the living out error, other errors like that. And, it's, and Tim's a pastor, and Tim, I knew Tim when I lived in Indiana University and was, was in the graduate school. 
Tim was my pastor, and so he's lived, and before that he lived in Madison. He's lived in these areas where um, he lived in San Francisco for a while. He lived in Boulder, Colorado. So he's lived in places where the, there's um, they're very gay-friendly, and, um, the, and so he understands the issues that are going on, and he's a pastor, and that book will be very helpful. His main point is that we need to have shame over our sin, and that shame is a grace of God. I mentioned Bisexuality in the Ancient World by Eva Cantarella earlier. Uh, she is a professor at the University of Milan. It's a hard read. It's very academic, but it's eye-opening to old pedophilia and uh, homosexuality, but bears so many resemblances to what it is today. And then, you know, uh, the doctrine of repentance. Thomas Watson, bring, bring in a Puritan here, my favorite Puritan. He has a chapter in there on the shame of sin. He says that uh, blushing is the color of virtue, which is so true. And there's so little blushing today. There's so little hanging of heads over our sin. It's a diminished view of God and his, whole, his absolute holiness. And it's a diminished view of our depravity. But uh, that book is helpful from beginning to end on the process of repentance. William Perkins has a lot of material on the conscience as well, and uh, there are some more recently published books on the conscience um, and preaching to the conscience for preachers, but also um, cultivating the vitality of your conscience as an individual believer or as a preacher or just as a Christian. And the conscience is so integral to who we are and to living the godly life for even when your will is weak or your affections are disordered or your mind uh, is rationalizing sin, your conscience, and it screams against you, will floor the rest of the interior life. And uh, to have a, a, quick con- a quickened conscience, not an oversensitive conscience, but a quickened conscience is a great blessing from God. And honestly, I'd rather have an overly sensitive conscience than a, than a calloused one. So Absolutely. that is what it is. Andrew, thank you for joining me on the podcast. This has been, uh, I hope, a helpful interview for many of our listeners. This was certainly helpful for me. I hope I didn't get up on the soapbox too much. But this is a very important topic and I appreciate you taking time to speak with me about it. Thanks, brother. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.